Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Isaiah. It's actually the same scripture I read last week to you. It's Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I can think of no more gloomy day than yesterday. (laughs) I mean, the last Two days, and even today to some degree, have just been nonstop rain and or drizzle and fog and cold. I, I spent the last day of deer season in that rain and fog. And for some of us, <clears throat> Dave Herman, it was worth it. He was able to get a really nice deer on the last day. Um, for me, I just was wet and cold and... As Ben and I walked back to the house um, across the fields and through the woods, I, we were slogging through fields with mud that was just sinking. I was sinking up to my ankles in mud, and I tried to cross the creek, and the bank was slippery, and I slipped and ended up on my backside laying in the creek. And I was just ready to be home and, and done. It was gloomy, was it not? I think that's kind of why, to be honest, you guys look a little gloomy today too. And I think, I think maybe you can feel that. I'm just, it's, it's just the weather. Well, you know, yesterday I think was a walk in the park compared to the gloom that Isaiah is describing here in chapter 9. Isaiah says in verse 1, he says, there will be no more gloom. And if we have to understand what that's about, we have to back up to chapter 8 to see what exactly, what kind of gloom is he talking about. And in Isaiah 8, verses, verse 5 through 8, we, we read that there's judgment coming on this nation of Israel. And, and it's, it's real and it's scary. And here's, here's what Isaiah says in 8, verse 5. And again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shaloah, 
and rejoice in reason at the land of Ramallah? Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel." What, what Isaiah is saying here through poetic language, poetic language is that Assyria, a foreign nation, is going to sweep through the <clears throat> excuse me through, sweep through the northern tribes of Israel just like a flood sweeps across the land. It's going to wipe out everything in its path. There's going to be complete destruction, and there's no way to stop it. Um, it's going to start in Damascus, in the north, and it's going to sweep all the way down through to Judah, the southern kingdom of, of the land of Israel. I remember back in the uh, early, mid-90s, we had one of those great big blizzards that we had at, at that time. And, and we, I, you remember that snow three, four feet deep. We were shoveling roofs and everything. And I don't know if you remember this part, though. There was a strong southern wind. And that entire late, late winter, early spring snowstorm, whatever that was, melted in one night. I remember laying there in bed because the wind was so strong and just looking out the window. I couldn't sleep all night and just watching all that snow go from, you know, wherever it was down to nothing. And we woke up in the morning and there were floods everywhere. Um, We had the, the gas business at that time. And I remember dad and I had to go out and we were trying to secure propane tanks that were floating and, you know, hanging on. And, and we went down the road to, uh, little Books Hollow where there's supposed to be a little quiet stream flowing through and and Books Hollow was a raging flood and we had a tank a propane tank that was floating and ready to break away and go down the, the creek and be gone and so I was elected to go secure that tank and I remember some friendly passerby said here's a pair of hip waders and I put them on and that was great until the water came over the top, and then they were not so great. And I tell you what, that water was cold. I mean, it, it, was, it was ice the day before, and now it's going down. And it, waters were muddy, and every, it was awful. I'm making my way closer to the house with this ice-cold water now that I'm wading through, and, and I started to get fighting the, the current, and I started to get my feet tangled up, on something, and I came to realize that, oh yes, this is soon after Christmas. This was they, this house still had Christmas lights strung from candy canes around their yard, and I was tangled up in Christmas lights. And uh, then I got closer to the house, and I began to feel this this pulsing surges of electricity. And here, the water was up to you know the electrical meter or something like that, and there was just this odd sensation. And, and I, was, I was scared. Floodwaters are, are damaging. They're destructive. And, and that's what is happening here. Isaiah describes this Assyrian army as like a, a raging flood. And it's going to sweep through that way. And nothing is going to stop it. Look at verse 9. He says, Be broken, O people, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourself... In other words, get ready. But what does he say? Yet, 
be shattered. Gird yourselves, I'll say it again, and yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal. It will not stand. There is nothing that you can do that is going to stop this advancing army. That's the word from Isaiah the prophet. You can try, you can resist, you can fight, but you will not stand. You will be shattered and you will be defeated. Can you imagine? We don't live in a world like this. You're a tiny little nation about the size of New Jersey And you're watching this massive Assyrian army sweep across the the known world, one nation after another, falling to their destructive forces. And you see what they do. You hear the stories. Siege, starvation, pillaging, murder, rape, enslavement, torture. The Assyrians were famous for being absolutely ruthless. And it's coming to you. And Isaiah says, it's coming. And so we read here in in verse um, 22, in chapter 8, immediately preceding the passage that we read in our scripture reading, he says, they will look to the earth and behold, what will they see? Everybody? All right. They're going to see distress, darkness, gloom of anguish. And they will be driven away into darkness. I want you to underline those words in your Bible if you're somebody who marks words or at least mark them in your mind. There will be... There will be... um, Distress, darkness, gloom... Gloom of anguish. These are negative, bad, scary words. But then we come to verse chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 1. And what does Isaiah says? But. But there's going to be hope. He says, but there will be no more gloom for, who, who, for her who was in anguish. There will be no more gloom. I want you to underline again that word, no more, those words, no more gloom for her who was in anguish. For what does it say? She says, it says here, in earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. In earlier times, earlier times, that's a, that's kind of a vague word, isn't it? Vague description of time. When is this? We don't really know. It's not descriptive of when, but it says in earlier times he's treated the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. These are two of the tribes of Israel that are all the way in the northern part of the, of the country. They are the northern tribes. They surround the Galilee region. And uh, they were often the first regions that were attacked by foreign armies. But then it says, but later on, verse 1. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. So I want to draw your attention to the comparison here. We have former gloom, and he's talking about latter glory. Do you see that? Formerly there was gloom and anguish and distress, but in the latter times there will be glory. And we've got to, we're going to see that 
that comparison, former and latter, throughout this passage. And then he says, by the way of the sea, he's describing this land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And I have to ask myself, why does he look at this land with contempt? Why does he call it Galilee of the Gentiles? Isn't this the land of Israel? And, and yes, it is. But it's a, it's a, this is the part of the country that bordered the hostile Gentile nations. It was a porous border for an attacking army, and most of the attacks on the Israel swept down from the north. And that was because an attacking army could hide among the, the mountains as they came through like the Golan Heights down from Syria and Lebanon and, and Damascus. It provided good cover for invaders. Now remember how I drew attention to the words gloom and darkness in chapter 8? We had distress and darkness, gloom and anguish. And again, he says darkness. But then in verse 1, he says there will be no more gloom. Verse 2, why? For the people who walk in darkness will see what? They will see a great light. And I want you to underline that again. Former darkness and now light. Those in a dark land light will shine on them. Note the contrast. We have former gloom, we have former darkness, and in the latter times we have glory and we have bright light. Now this prophecy is going to find its fulfillment in 2 Kings chapter 15. Keep your finger in Isaiah and turn your Bibles back to 2 Kings chapter 15. And this prophecy of Isaiah we see what actually happened and how it came to play out in verse 29. 2 Kings fifteen twenty-nine. It happened in the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, that Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon and Abel-Bet-Maaka and Genoa and Kadesh and Hatsor and Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali exactly like Isaiah said, and he carried them captive to Assyria. Now, the rest of this prophecy has very specific fulfillments. Both, both in prophet, Old Testament prophecies often have what was called a near fulfillment and a far view fulfillment, and this is one of them. Uh, the near view fulfillment took place in 2 Kings 15 when Tiglath-Pileser did come in indeed and he swept through the land just like a flood would sweep through a land and he destroyed everything. We also see far view fulfillments as we read this passage of Isaiah 9. Uh, there are par- we could go through this chapter and we can parse out what parts are prophetic of the millennial kingdom, what parts are prophetic of the tribulation period. And, and that's all good. That has its place. We could tell you that this, you know, the near view fulfillment took place in the year 733 BC with absolute precision. But that's not the way I want to look at this passage today. Not now. And I believe the, the vagueness of the phrase, or if that's even a word, the ambiguity of, of the phrase um, earlier times and later times is deliberate. That's not our focus. I think it would be our focus if it were not for the fact that Matthew uses this very passage and quotes it 
Matthew records that Jesus quotes this passage as pertaining to himself. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 4. And let's see what he says here. John, I'm sorry, Jesus has, in Matthew 4, has just been baptized by John the Baptist. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And we saw here in in Matthew 4, and it's also recorded in Luke 4, that Jesus is completely human. He is hungry. He is tired. He is thirsty. And he is at his weakest point physically. We also see his deity exemplified in the way that even though he is physically weak, he does not give in to the devil's temptation, and he defeats him every every time. And that reflects his his sinless perfection, or what theologians would call the impeccability of Christ. And immediately after this, in Matthew chapter 4, I want to begin reading at verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been taken into custody... He withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. So Jesus has now left his childhood home. He left the place where Mary and Joseph raised him. He left the place where Joseph returned after the time in Egypt. And he was raised in this little village of Nazareth. He has preached in the synagogues in Nazareth. He, has, has, um, he probably has employment in Nazareth. He is 30 years old. He certainly has a job. He's a, most likely a stonemason like his father, a man who works with his hands. And he leaves Nazareth, and he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea. And Capernaum is not far at all from Nazareth. He moves, Jesus does for some reason, he moves from Sunbury to Shemokin, if you will, a neighboring village, um, in the region of, this sounds familiar, Zebulun and Naphtali. Why does Jesus suddenly pack up at the age of 30 and move to another town? Another village. Just a neighboring village. The reason is given in verse 14. (laughs) This was done to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus packs up and moves so that this prophecy in Isaiah would be fulfilled. And really, if it were not for Matthew recording this, we, would, we may not even know that this prophecy in Isaiah pertained to the Messiah. But it does. And, and his message is this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to transform, if you want to turn from gloom to glory, you have to Repent. And, and this passage in Isaiah 9, we can go back to Isaiah 9, although it's, it's very precise prophetically, has as its most important message 
a description of Jesus. So look at verse 2 again. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Former gloom, former darkness, latter glory, latter light. This idea of glory is a difficult one to describe. Um, I have seen numerous definitions and descriptions of what glory is in the Bible. And in my opinion, every one of them seems to fall short. It's one of those terms that we throw around in the church a lot. We, we use it. It's all throughout the Bible. But what does glory actually mean? And I, I have never been able to find a definition that satisfied me, in, in my opinion. So I'm going to give you a definition that's my own. I, I came up with this. I did not read it. I was not taught it. Uh, you're welcome to say that my definition falls short, and that's fine. Um, I'll be in good company because I don't think anybody else has done a very good job of defining it either. But here's what I think glory is. Glory is a visible manifestation of the invisible attributes of God. And it's always described as brilliant, blinding, bright light. It's a visible manifestation of the invisible attributes of God. All the things that we know God is, when you actually see them, it always displays a poof, this bright light. Um, what does holiness look like? Bright light. How do you describe limitless power? The scriptures define, describe it as a brilliant, blinding, bright light. What does every person who sees God see? Blinding, bright light. Glory. Is a, is a visible manifestation of his invisible attributes. And it says here, they will see a great light. And then verse 3, something interesting happens in Isaiah 9. It says, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil for you shall break the yoke of their burden. And when you read this for the first time in this passage, this word you appears, who is Isaiah speaking to? Well, he's speaking to this light. This light will shine on them. The people will see a great light. And now Isaiah begins to speak to this light and he calls it you. He says, you multiply the nations. You increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence for you shall break the yoke of their burden. It's the light that ends the gloom. It's the light that shatters the darkness. The light multiplies the nation. He is the fulfillment of, of the Abrahamic covenant given in, in, in Genesis chapter 17. It says, you will be a, a light to all nations and Abraham will be a father of many peoples. This light gives liberation to the oppressed. It says, you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Do you remember the story of Gideon? And Gideon and the nation of Israel is surrounded by the Midianites, an army that is described as, as, multi, as many as the sand of the seashore. And Gideon is there with his tiny little army, 
He is not a soldier. He is not a warrior. We, find, we first meet Gideon when he is hiding, trying to thresh grain in a wine press. That's not where you thresh grain. And God uses him to raise up an army, and then God says, your army is too many. And he reduces it and reduces it until there are only 300 people, 300 soldiers, ready for battle against an army of Midianites as numerous as the sand of the seashore. But you know the story. What happened? That Midianite army was completely destroyed. And here, Isaiah says, this person, this light, will break the yoke of their burden, just the the staff on their shoulders, just like God did at the battle of Midian. And then this being who is being talked to and addressed as you, this light, is also given a birth announcement. Birth announcements are pretty neat. I, uh, we've made birth announcements for our children, and it's just a great way of sharing, sharing joy. Um, you normally have a photo of the baby, and included on a photo of the baby, what else do we include? The, the day they were born, their birth date, we include their weight, we include their length, we, we include their name, of course, their name. Uh, sometimes we'll announce the proud parents. You know, you show a picture of the proud parents holding this baby. I, I, I remember my, um, one of my cousins being born and my aunt and uncle their birth announcement had them pulling her out of their mailbox. And this little baby was tucked away in the mailbox. And, and uh, my aunt and uncle, the parents, were standing there, you know, excited that this baby, this spe- special package was delivered. And birth announcements are fun. There's a recent, more recent trend of announcing pregnancies. Um, in the same way, we send photos or we use social media, Facebook, Instagram, to announce that somebody is expecting a child. Maybe they'll just put a picture of an ultrasound and just announce publicly to everybody that, hey, we're expecting a baby. Or there's this, which is very recent thing called gender reveal parties. And people will reveal the gender of their baby. Um, sometimes with, with tragic consequences, as we saw just last week where or not, not last week, last month. Last month alone, um, two people died uh, doing gender reveals. Uh, I blame, personally, I blame social media for this just desire to be over the top. And, you know, we, we just, we don't keep anything private anymore, but that's, that's my opinion. But, you know, some birth announcements go out soon after the baby is born. Some birth announcements go out months before the baby is born, some as soon as the parents can recover and get their feet back in the ground. But no matter what, it's exciting. But this birth announcement in Isaiah 9 is different. This birth announcement goes out 700 years before the baby is even conceived. Can you imagine that? Even more amazing... The, um, well, the reason that 
that it takes 700 years for this to take place is, is not because God is struggling. It's not like he's trying to fulfill his promise sooner, but he just can't. It's not because he forgot or became distracted or was unable. No, the prophet Israel delivers this announcement to Israel because they were facing a threat from an Assyrian army that was terrifying. And he wants to give them hope. There's a promise There's a prophecy of a coming future king. And this promise was meant to sustain the people through a a very dark time. It was intended to give God's people hope. And it was his gift to his people. Now, we said how birth announcements give a child a name. This birth announcement, given 700 years early, does not list a name. It lists four. And they're not just simple names, but they're they're descriptions of his character. They're descriptions of his occupation. Can you imagine reading that on a birth announcement? This child will be a world leader. You'd probably wrinkle your nose at that and think, what is with these parents? This child is going to be a concert violinist. This child is going to be a a successful businesswoman. This child will be a great soccer player or athlete. This child will be a great loving mother or father. You don't do that because you have no idea what this child is going to be. Birth Birth announcements don't list accomplishments. They don't list character traits. They can't. There are none. But this baby is different. And each description gives me hope because it says it corresponds to an area of great need for me. It says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. He's a counselor that corresponds to my need for for advice, for help, for guidance. He's called the mighty God. And that that relates to my need for strength. Guys, I'm like you. I'm weak. I'm weak physically. This body is not what it was when it was 20. I, I'm weak emotionally. Sometimes I feel like I can handle hard handle. I can hardly handle my own stress, much less the stress of, you know, others, my family. I'm weak spiritually. We live in a sin cursed world. I am a sinner by nature, and I need His strength. He's He's a Father. He's eternal Father. Every human being has a need for a strong hand and a loving Father, and He is peaceful. That corresponds, that speaks to my need for, to be free of trouble. Guys, I don't know what your greatest need is. I don't know how, what advice you may be seeking right now, what counsel you may seek. Counseling is a wonderful tool. I am not a fan of 
a lot of secular counseling. I'm not always, I'm a little bit suspicious of Christian counseling at times. Biblical counseling I am fully supportive of because biblical counseling does what? It directs us to this wonderful counselor. But if direction is what you need, Jesus is there for you. He's not just a counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. Maybe your greatest need is some spiritual emptiness that you feel. You've, you've, been, you've been pursuing all kinds of other pleasures and trying to make yourself right before God in numerous different ways. You've, you've pursued secularism. You've pursued um, humanism. You've, you've, you've tried to just pretend that God doesn't exist. He does. And he's real. And he's the mighty God. Maybe your need is, is a father. You know, your, your father was never what he should have been. And many people try to fill that void through different ways. Through seeking the attention of other men and getting that attention in other ways that are not healthy nor even appropriate. If that's you... God is your eternal father and he's never going to leave. Maybe your greatest need is just a sense of peace. And you feel troubled in your soul. You've run to food. You've run to alcohol. You run to sleep. You run to pursuing pleasures to try to find some kind of sense of peace. Jesus is that peace. In fact, he's called the Prince of Peace. His counsel is wonderful. There is no better advice. His might is divine might. He, there is no power greater than he has. His fatherhood is eternal. You will never attend his funeral. And as eternal king, his peace is everlasting. And I have to tell you, sometimes it seems like, well, that's impossible for me. I'm going to direct your attention to the last verse in verse that we read, verse 7, the very last phrase. You think this is not possible with God? The zeal of the Lord of angelic armies will accomplish this in your life. He will do it, friends. Jesus Christ is the greatest gift there has ever been. I trust that you would find him and trust him, find that fulfillment in him today. Let's have a word of prayer together.